The Mindset Advantage, a podcast by Arcadia Consulting, architects of change. The word resilience comes from the word resile, meaning to spring back, or the ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape. For most of us, it means to be able to cope, absorb pressure, and to be able to bounce back. Resilience is learned and can be taught, and today Deborah Price is joined by former frontline soldier and Sunday Times bestselling author, Brian Wood, to share his experience from the battlefield and how his lessons can be applied to individuals and work teams. Hello and welcome to this podcast series of the Mindset Advantage. I'm Deborah Price. I'm one of the senior consultants at Arcadia Consulting. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Brian Wood. Brian, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Deborah. And thank you so much for uh, inviting me on to the podcast. Absolute pleasure. Your story is so inspiring. I'm really looking forward to sharing that with our listeners. Let's start by just asking you to tell us all a little bit about yourself. Yeah, no problem. So I'm Brian Wood and known to my friends and family as Woody. And I'm a former frontline soldier and I served for 17 years within the British Armed Forces. Um, I'm also a Sunday Times best-selling author of my book, uh, Double Crossed. And very soon, there's going to be my life story uh, coming to our TV screens on BBC Two. And that's called Danny Boy, um, which features my life story, my ups and downs and challenges that I experienced and uh, yeah, I'm very proud of it you know I've seen it a number of times now and just can't wait for everyone internationally now because it's going internationally to watch it and I'm also the founder of my clothing range Keep Attacking which is a resilient range of clothing that suits anyone because you know the mantra Keep Attacking is very unique to the individual it's a message that sort of pushes people to overcome adversity and, you know, and just allows people to try and achieve their goals in life, try to get through their challenges in life and try and get through whatever internal battles that they're having. So, yeah, a lot going on at the moment, but it's exciting. Very exciting. And uh, just offline before we started this recording, it was great to hear your excitement about the uh, upcoming release of the film. So brilliant. Really looking forward to to watching that. I did a bit of research, obviously, in anticipation of doing this podcast with you. And your, your story is truly amazing. And I'm delighted to be here with you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your book, Double Crossed, and also about the TV series? I think that the uh, listeners would really like to hear that. Yeah, so my book, Double Crossed, is, is my biography, um, and it focuses on three battles within the narrative. The Battle of Danny Boy, which I was a young commander at 23, and I had to, we were ambushed, basically, against a, a militia who were heavily armed. We were outnumbered, and um, we were told, basically, to, to counter the ambush, and uh, as it 23-year-old with extreme pressure on my shoulders. Um, we did that and we kind of achieved, which a lot of people thought was unachievable. And even looking back now, you know, we, we, were, we were professional, but we were lucky also. Um, the secondary battle was my battle to reintegrate into family life, if I'm honest, from the scars of war fighting and not actually decompressing where I should have decompressed, not creating dialogue when I should have created dialogue. So coming home, you know, I left to go to Iraq in 2004, four weeks after my firstborn son, um, you know, was this bundle of joy and, and then all of a sudden just leaving him. So I never got any time to really make that connection or bond. And then coming back six months later, a lot changes. And with me, I kind of resented my wife's relationship through jealousy. I was angry of some of the legacy issues that I'd experienced within Iraq, um, but never un unloaded about that or never kind of, yeah, like I said, decompressed. So there was a lot of turbulence within the household coming into this environment after being away for six months. You know, women are resilient. They get into routine. They focus on their priorities, which was our son, Bailey. She, you know, really did everything that she possibly could while I was away to be mother and father. And when I got back, it was, it was tough. It was really challenging. And, um, you know, it caused a lot of upset within the household because, you know, I was 
damaged goods as well, mentally. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time because in 2004, especially in the military, you know, mental health, mental resilience, mental fitness wasn't spoken about like it is today. So I just kind of blocked it all, but aired my frustrations, my aggression um, to the people that I loved and it just wasn't fair. And the third, and without a shadow of a doubt, my hardest battle was to clear my name and my soldier's name from allegations that went into the public of murder, mutilation and mistreatment. And uh, it went into the public and it became a public inquiry. The inquiry then lasted for five years. And, um, you know, I'm just pleased at the end of it that we were all vindicated and Phil Shiner, the public interest lawyer, was then found guilty on 12 accounts of a number of different things that he um, got caught up in. So that was a journey within itself to try and get through that um, because I was trying to protect myself, my soldiers and my family. And carrying all of that weight on your shoulders is, is, is challenging. Um, but I'm pleased to say, you know, I got, we got there in the end and now we're the happiest we've ever been and really enjoying life and like we spoke about today was the first day that the film trailer was um, announced by the BBC so it's been a journey and um, yeah I've learned a lot from that journey. Thanks Brian yeah so lots of um, battles as you described them and very different in nature I guess the the one that for most of us who aren't in the armed forces would probably um, fear the most would be the battle, the Danny Boy battle. And, and I guess in some ways you were best prepared for that because you had training, you had, you know, advanced warning to some degree of what was going to happen, what was going to be expected of you. Um, and But then on the home front, as you say, you know, coming back, I guess, anticipating that you'd slot back into the old ways of being and then finding that that suddenly wasn't what you were expecting. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, I was trained as a soldier. I was trained to be tested in some tough environments. Even though you can train and train and train and you prepare for these extreme situations, but when they, when they arise, you know, you have to really, for me personally, I had to understand the situation I was in. So the ambush was overwhelming. It was intensive and it was violent and it was dangerous. And with that, you experience a lot of emotions, fear without a shadow of a doubt being the biggest. And it threatens to kind of take over you if you can't cap it and suppress it. And it's contagious. And as a leader at 23, I still had a younger soldiers who were looking at me for reassurance, for clear direction, for calm in chaos. You know, and that's what we get taught in the military. We are very good at focusing on leadership. We are very good at people skills and being inclusive and and in this situation I really had to dive into that knowledge on being calm in the most violent of situations you know I was disorientated the heat was horrendous and it was just how you know it was figuring out how to cope with all, all of this and you know what it's like when you are under pressure and overwhelmed with emotion that you become 10% hotter and flustered and just because I'm a soldier I'm no different I'm a human being and I'm also in this environment, which is probably 50 degrees in the back of an armored vehicle, and then 10% hotter. I'm trying to, there's a lot of things you have to think about, but you break it down. For so my resilience coping mechanism then was okay, I'm still entitled to a cigar moment. So I pause too free. And then I start to break what's happening down, and it's controlling the fear, controlling the disorientation, the noise, sharing information giving clarity, reassuring. All of this is done in the moment and it's a lot to think about, but actually it's not. So it's just kind of delivering them in the moment, but taking a pause to do so because it's very easy to go with the adrenaline and go with the emotion. And sometimes that can be a double-edged sword. So it's for me, it was really important to take a breath. We call it a cigar moment, pause two, three, break the situation down and we go again. And that was kind of my tools for dealing with that battle or the initial ambush. And then at home, it was just, a, this was a completely different battle. Like you said, that I wasn't trained for, I wasn't educated. 
I didn't have the tools or the resources to understand why my son didn't want me to hold him, why my son didn't want me to feed him, why my son didn't want me to bath him, because we didn't have that bond. But it's heartbreaking and it's frustrating. And that's where I struggled to find the right tools. And looking back, I should have been more patient. Mm. I should have not been so forceful on trying to gain this relationship with my son because in time it will come. But, you know, I was a young man then, which mm. I've just brought this bundle of joy into the world. And yeah, it was just, it's a hard, it was a hard, hard time in, in my life that I wanted to, for something to work so much that it just wasn't. And that was very frustrating. But, you know, it was, it could have been rectified if I'd shared my emotions and spoke to Lucy about it um, instead of just being verbally aggressive and angry all the time where I could have actually sat down and, and said, you know, putting everything into perspective, you know, I should have done that. But it's a lesson learned, definitely. And obviously, the, 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 sorry, the third battle for me was the battle of integrity because I had someone question my decisions in extreme situations. You know, once the battle of Danny Boy was finished and it was a three and a half hour battle, it just wasn't getting ambushed. And then that was it. There were so many different phases to that. And it absolutely needed you on hypervigilant, your best decision making, courage, true grit, determination, teamwork, tenacity, all of these key things allowed us to achieve what we achieved because we worked hard as a team, because we were inclusive, because, because we communicated, we shared what our decisions were going to be before we made them. And I think that was really important. And um, yeah, it was a, the, the integrity side of it was tough for me to take because I was awarded the military cross by Her Majesty the Queen in 2005 for my actions um, during the Battle of Danny Boy, to then be in the courtroom, in the dock, getting cross-examined and getting shredded of who I was as a person, who, what I stood for, my values, my standards. It was just, it was heartbreaking, if I'm honest. It was just devastating. And I just felt broken because it wasn't me. I am a man of integrity. I'm a man of honesty. and we did the right thing on that battlefield and we survived to then have these crazy allegations made against us, but they stuck and they grew and they ended up becoming one of the biggest, most expensive public inquiries that the UK seen 31 million pounds of taxpayers money spent on it. So that was, that, that was tough to understand. However, my deduction on that and the, resi the resilience that I showed throughout that was, I showed up every day. It was hard at times. I was lower than a slug's belly at times. You know, my mental well-being was under so much pressure. But every day, I pulled them curtains back and let some light in. I kept attacking. Hence, the name of my clothing range and the mantra that I, it sticks by me. Because the best form of defense is attack. It's going on the offensive action. And I had to because... I knew what they were saying was not the truth. And I'm a man of integrity uh, and I'm a man of honor. And I wanted to get to the truth, even though it was exhausting. It was emotional. However, I maintained the belief that I could do it. Amazing, Brian. You know, just heartbreaking is a word you've used a couple of times that I could, you know, genuinely feel that myself when you're telling your story and just noticing the different um, strategies that are necessary for you know the, the one of the battle and the one of the um, battling for your integrity your reputation uh, keep attacking with that and with the home front I'm guessing that you tried to attack as well in in that circumstance and really there was a different strategy that was needed there and, and you eventually came to but you were ill-equipped uh, and also not expecting that, um, I guess with the, the, the first battle, 
that's what you were there for. You knew that that was going to happen, maybe not exactly when, but the home one was unexpected. And certainly that integrity one was. Could they have, what could have been put in place, do you think, to have assisted you? Because I hear you taking a lot of responsibility for what you could have or should have done. Um, as an outsider listening in and thinking what, what could have been in place for you, what, what would you have needed more of at that time, do you think? Trauma risk management um, and having a gap. We do it now, the military do it now. On Once we leave the war fighting piece, we go into decompression. And then we do trauma risk management. So we speak about incidents. We do after action reviews on trauma because there's a lot. And trauma is being exposed to something that is abnormal and it's going to have an effect to the human. Well, that 100%, you just can't park that and pretend you didn't see or experience whatever traumatic situation you go through. So you have to acknowledge that. And I never had the decompression because it was missed. I come home actually about three weeks early from my tour. Hence that, that's why I was, it was probably missed. And uh, I never got to sit down with my peers and talk about some of the legacy trauma that I had experienced. And um, that 100% could have helped me because it then would have highlighted some areas where potentially I needed to seek some professional support. And I actually did that in 2009. I built mm. up enough courage to, to go and knock on a door and, and to talk about some of the pressures that I was experiencing and some of the situations that I was involved in. And actually, it was 100% the best thing I'd ever done, even though I kept away from it for such a long time because of the environment that I was in, all-male organization, alpha male, you know, British soldiers, frontline soldiers at that, that. We just don't talk about that sort of stuff. But I just needed to because I was just at breaking point with the inquiry and I needed some, I need to understand why I was feeling the ways that I was feeling. Mm-hmm. And I'd been resilient for so long, but I could have been the same resilient, but with absolutely mechanism that would have supported me. And that's a regret of mine. I should have, I should have knocked on a door sooner and I delayed it, um, which unfortunately you know definitely caused a few problems however i did do it and it wasn't too late it was too long but i still did it yeah yeah but but enjoyed that for far longer perhaps than you needed to so really noticing you know the expectation of coming home and everything being lovely and going back perhaps to what you what you'd left behind but obviously for your wife and your son things had also changed for them and so yeah. then trying to fit into their relationship and their routine, et cetera. And, you know, the babies tend to push people away anyway. And, and that can be heartbreaking, even if you haven't gone through what you have. But when you have already come back with that trauma, that must have been, as you say, really heartbreaking for you to have to deal with that. In terms of um, some of the things that I, I, you've been mentioning there, so things like noticing that you needed to to talk earlier you know we're going to talk about how this equates to um everyday citizens and in a business kind of situation as well but you know i think there's some key themes here you know knowing when we need to talk and making sure that we don't let that go on too long there's a lot of research around you know being it's being okay and it being a strength and courage to be vulnerable um and so what what was it that helped you to accept that you needed that help I think for me, it was, yeah, it was acknowledging that I needed some help. It's, it's, that is the fun, for me, it was the fundamental changing point because I was in denial for a long time. I don't need that help. I don't need that help. I don't need that help. And a few people will be like, yeah, you do. I'll be like, whatever. And when I actually acknowledged to myself that I needed some help and some support for the pressures that I was under, I then was accountable to go and sort this out. Because only I could do that. No one else is going to do it other than me. And that was 100% a big thing for me, taking accountability for my actions like I would do on the battlefield. I need to do that for my own well-being. And it's hard. It was hard as well. But 100% was the best thing I've ever done. You know, people people will experience... Everyone will experience adversity at some point in their life. Life is beautiful, but it's a demand. Mm. And everyone will experience 
adversity, whether it be an illness, grief, pressure at work, you know, pressures of adapting, whether it be, you know, you're trying to get this project over the line, you're trying to, you know, sort of build this sales pitch that you want to go in and, and really deliver on. That's pressure. You know, it doesn't matter if you're on the battlefield. Pressure comes in different shapes and sizes. It's being flexible to change. We're going through, you know, the last year and three months or whatever, a huge change. And we've had to, in my opinion, be flexible. Don't play the victim. It's happened to so many. Don't say, I can't do that now because of X, the pandemic, or because things have changed and I'm not in the right environment. You ha- we have to emotionally adapt. We have to figure out a way because everyone's going through it and everyone's had to make change and everyone's had to be, you know, they've had to have that perseverance to keep moving, keep attacking. And we're going to have to go different ways. And um, yeah, that's kind of where, I'm sorry, I, I digressed then, but that's kind of where, you know, that it all fitted in for me. And then I started to, when I, seek some support and the first few sessions that I shared my experiences and really went into the devil in the detail I then started to create a toolkit and actually I've been dipping out I've been in and out of it you know recently so it's it works great and, and still um strategies that you use today Brian do, do, do you kind of having got through it things are better do you still rely on those strategies to keep you going yeah I, I definitely think so because Yes, I've been through a lot like so many others, but they don't have all of the answers. I, I use some of the mechanisms and some of the strategies, and, and I'll tell you the biggest strategy, and it's for free, is talk. Talk mm-hmm. to your team. Talk to the people you trust. Talk to loved ones because they can also give you some clear direction, a bit of advice, something that you've not thought about, reading blogs, blogging yourself going in and reading about wellness, about pressure, about emotionally, you know, emotional resilience, all of this is content that someone's gone through in the past. And if there's relatable content there, try and extract something that that can support you. And you can find it out there. I mean, the internet is just saturated with brilliant content. It's saturated with not so great content as well. So it's figuring out what you need to get to. But I can definitely rely on some of the strategies. Not not them all, some of them that worked for me back in when I needed when I was, you know, really under pressure to to now, um, which is a different type of pressure. Mm. And I, just thinking about this from a leader's perspective, I guess it's really the intimacy of understanding and knowing our team and being able, being able to recognize when they're genuinely not coping because as you've described when we are the person who's not coping we probably close in on ourselves we probably disconnect from other people and it's much harder to see that we need help so we need our leaders to be really aware of when people are, are getting to that tr- critical point and they need some help we can all have our own resilience tools and strategies but they won't always work sometimes we do need that um, intervention from people who care about us around us yeah i agree i mean as a as a leader i think this is and i said this before we went on air you know i'm i'm not the oracle but i can only talk how i led people in some punchy situations and how my processes i think allowed people to even when i was a senior leader not so senior leaders could come in and, and actually speak to me about maybe are you okay and having that courage to ask if the leader is okay because like you say we are trying to be this leader deliver you know the mission statement the main effort with all these contingencies in place with all these courses of action but actually who's looking after the leader and for me it's it's not having that facade where you have this barrier there's a fine line but you've got to be, in my opinion, approachable. You've got to sometimes uh, sit down and create dialogue with your team. And it's got to be about the uncomfortable subjects on well-being, on what does pressure look like? Actually, how are you feeling? And then if you are then asked a question back, then you should be honest about how you feel other than being fronting it up as a leader and say, There's, um, you know, nothing's affecting me. I'm so driven to this mission that there's a, yeah, there's a fine line because 
I think a more of an inspiring leader is to actually show your vulnerabilities like we spoke about, is to talk about some of the pressures that you're under and how you're feeling. And talking and listening is key. I think the the training side of it on mindset, you can have a, a couple of days training, um, you know, whether it be every three months or every six months and have a you know a training session on mindset and focus and, and learning. You know, the military actually released an advert, which I thought was quite good. It's fail, learn and win. You know, I think that's so good because I don't even think we do fail. I think we learn. I think failure is is is, is not a very nice uh, word. I think we learn. Well, I don't think people fail because we learn from not being successful. And then we train and then we go and execute, you know, the, the task that we've learned hard from you know like I said this is only kind of my experience and I try to get away from that failure word because it gets you down you know we need to face we need to focus on the good things we need to you know focus on what makes us tick and yes we have to crumble at times to then rebuild but we still be positive about that you know we criticize but then we finish off on a high that's how we end our debriefs you know, if you were to do that again, what would you do differently? If you would change anything, why would you change it? And we focus on the good points at the end. So people leave their sessions on a positive note. And I think, you know, as leaders, we, like I said, drop that real facade on being that powerhouse, show a tiny bit of vulnerability. There's a, there is mm-hmm. a fine line. You know, it's, I think they have, a, leaders have, um, they have a responsibility to put on these courses potentially, whether it be well-being or mindset courses or you know how to cope in different situations. And for instance, for example, um, the office group who I was involved with, uh, with when I first left the army, they went to the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst and did a day on leadership, did a day on how to deal with pressure, how to cope with certain um, elements of, you know, to basically getting people out of their comfort zones and then they, they film it all and then at the end of the day they then go through and do an after reaction review and just it just builds that team cohesion, that team ethos, that you know, getting everyone in to understand the main focus of that day and how everyone put their two pence worth from the people who are very quiet to the people who are very proactive and the, from the people who really want to try and get the job done now instead of having that cigar moment because everyone has a different leadership trait but they actually embed different areas of leadership it's quite fascinating actually because it opened my eyes up with some of the people that i thought were quite reserved laid back and then once they got their task they just changed completely and they went there and took the ball by the horns and yeah so there's there's sorry for digressing again but there's definitely responsibilities for leaders to yeah, acknowledge different battles and communicate. Like we always go back to communication. No one's ever going to know how you feel if you don't speak. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think you know you've really well articulated this need, the double-edged kind of um, coin or double-sided coin of, of being strong enough and courageous enough and um, convincing enough for people to follow you and to trust your leadership, but equally not going too far the other side where you're you know not demonstrating any of your vulnerability because that becomes a bit inauthentic. Um, and so we need to see a little bit of both. But it is it's quite a fine line to be walking, isn't it? To know what's what's too much, what's not enough. Um, and that vulnerability gives us some flex, whereas that inability to show our vulnerability makes us quite rigid. And I think that that is one of the things that is really tough in terms of resilience is because we get to breaking point, yeah. literally. No, I agree. And I think the military years ago used to be that organization. Mm. It used to be hard, discipline, do as you're told, do it that way only, let's get the job done. No questions asked. But actually, it's evolved and it's for the better. Because it is a more inclusive environment now. Every single person within that organization, which is still a business, has a role and responsibility and has a, has a key role within that business. No one's disregarded anymore. Everyone's got a voice because everyone's got an attribute mm-hmm. to that business. And everyone is a, a very important cog within that business. And that's where it's really important as well is acknowledge, acknowledging what you've got 
because it's very, you know, if you are just that kind of that tunnel vision focus on business, just to get it over the line, get it done, you actually miss the key, in my opinion, the key cog, which makes everything go round. And that is the people who are delivering it. That is the people who are really working hard for you to get this over the line. And actually, you know, sometimes you need to acknowledge that. And how you do that is completely independent. It's how who you are as a leader. But what I will say is don't ignore it because them small moments that you want to have a conversation or give someone praise, you don't know what that does to people. And even in the military where people think it's just this real hard organization, it's not. And praise goes a long way. And going out of your time to, you know, whether it be some examples, I'll, I'll give an example. And sorry if I'm just going off on one, but this is an example that I had. So. As a frontline soldier, you have, as a frontline commander, I had different soldiers from different walks of life. I really did, from very well-educated um, lads who had gone to you know, Eton or gone to Cambridge or you know, been very well-educated. who still wanted to serve their country because they volunteer for service, and it's incredible that they do that. But they wanted to do it as a soldier, not as an officer. And then I had, on the other spectrum side of it, I had then a soldier who was an orphan, who was bounced bounced around, didn't have an address until he was old enough to come into a belonging and be part of this family because the military really is a family. Mm. But everyone is, everyone is treated as one. But when I was on my second tour of Iraq and I was a sergeant, so I was a senior leader, I started to, because I knew the people who were operating with me inside and out because I made sure that I knew them as much as I could, the families, um, how many children they had, if they had a girlfriend, what made them tick? Because I knew if home life was okay, that they would have been operating with me at the best of their ability. So I tried to kind of take an interest in all of that. And I would off, just on the cuff speak to them, asking how their family is, asking what parcels I've had sent out, if they've had parcels out because it's morale. Just took a bit of an interest in what was going on with their family life and their relationship. Not too much. There's a fine balance, but just enough to make sure that they knew that I was interested in that. And uh, I got to understand from every two weeks, the helicopter would come in with our mail in a big underslung um, netting bag. And it, it used to drop it off on the helicopter landing site. And we would go on, retrieve the mail. Then I would give it all out. And it's a really nice feeling to me because it just gave me that sense of pride to give these letters from home out. It just made me like the father of it. It was just nice. And then I started to identify Chitty, who was the lad who was the orphan, wasn't getting any mail. So I needed to take action on that because I wasn't having it. It made me feel sad. He was a part of this family and I wanted to him included in what we were all experiencing because it's just, I can't explain how much morale it really is when you're away from home for so many weeks and months on end. So we had these sat phones and I went, I got Chitty's address, his number and stuff like that, got on the sat phone, phoned my wife and said, listen, can you make up a shoebox full of food, crisps, chocolate, magazines for Chitty? This is a number. He hasn't got anyone. And Lisa was like, done. And then the, the next two weeks, the same helicopter come by, dropped it off, sat down. I read his name and ranked out to in front of everyone. And Chitty actually looked at me and said, Sergeant, that's not for me because I haven't got anyone. And I said to him, you have. You've got us. This is your family. And it's your number, this. And he said, yes. I said, well, you have got this box. You know, that to me is a small bit of leadership that made him feel wanted, cared for. And then I knew that he was going to then operate at the best of his ability because he mm. wasn't feeling how he was feeling being around this group of people who had parcels and had letters from home. So, yeah, I mean, it's a small story, but it's, it's, it's real. And that's how I worked as a leader. It's a very powerful story, uh, Brian. I've got goosebumps uh, with you t- recounting that. And, you know, what you're showing is this, this again, this uh, dichotomy, really, of the, the toughness that goes with leadership, but also the soft and gentleness and the attention to the small signs, the small things that are incredibly meaningful. So that was a big, um, had a big impact, no doubt, on Chitty. And, you know, you took the time to understand and notice what wasn't happening for him that compared to the rest of the team. And I think, you know, as leaders, it's one of the things we need to be conscious of is how do we bring all of the team along all of the time? So obviously we're looking at over the process of change and we'll have people who will 
be okay and not be okay at different times. So as the leader, it's really paying attention to our own needs, but also what are the different uh, stages that our teams are going through in terms of their acceptance of the change, uh, they, you know, being able to run with that, being resilient, not being resilient. And often it comes, you know, at a time when we're, you know, we're at our least resilient as well. So it's, it's a very challenging situation to go through. On the, uh, the front of those three battles, what I, I heard you say is that in regard to the home battle, you know, talking was really, really important. And uh, I think that perspective in terms of, you know, not making up things that were going on, what did it mean when your son didn't uh, reach out to you, etc. So getting a different viewpoint on that and accepting uh, that there might be a different interpretation to it. With the, the military battle, um, tell us a little bit about the resilience strategies there. So what, what kicked in for you when you were, you know, contemplating that just getting out of the tank and you were you knew that there was huge danger right ahead of you and you had team members to look after as well with your with your um soldiers yeah for sure i mean for me it was bringing it into bite-sized chunks and don't get overwhelmed with the situation and allow the situation to take over you as an individual and as me as a leader even though i was young uh, i was still a commander i still had responsibility and it was human life um, but I never allowed that to overwhelm the fact that, you know, we have got a mission, we've got a task, and it's now figuring out how I carry that out. And for me, it was communicating to the, the guys in the back with me to keep them up to date what's going on, um, given trying to paint them a picture on the situation that we're in. So is just really giving them as, as much information as I could with showing them that belief that we could get it done, that desire, that hunger, the commitment. Because once we leave that vehicle, I was going regardless. And I was the first person to leave that vehicle because by example is a big leadership thing for me. I wouldn't expect anyone to do something that I'm not prepared to do myself. So therefore, I was hoping that I would empower, inspire the lads to follow me out of that vehicle once the door was open. Mm-hmm. Um, I took it in stages. I phased from leaving that vehicle to going into a holding position to then taking my time from that holding position. I then had a look outside to the situation that I was actually in. I composed myself. I then done my own, we call it a combat estimate. So how now am I going to get from this ditch that I am now in out of that vehicle so I've gone from being in the vehicle, red hot, disorientated, in a heavy, heavy ambush, to now running 30 meters, and I'm now in a trench-type um, gorse. I'm out of sight of the enemy still. I've got cover from view. I've got cover from fire, and we are now in this position. So that was phase one for me to get there. Then phase two was identifying where this stronghold was, which I did. I got up and had a look mm-hmm. and I identified it straight away. It was 120 meters to my front. And then it was going down. It was sharing the information with the guys on the ground with me. It was, like again, sharing that belief that once we go over the top, over the top and it was going over the top like the greatest generation. It was like the, the World War generation. It really was. And we, dis- we discussed casualties and what we're going to do we're going to continue and if we achieve what we are setting out to achieve we'll come back for the casualties we won't leave them they'll come with us we achieved breaking down the ground so we'll be bounding and we'll be covering each other and once we get into that trench position then we would then wait for some clear direction because i didn't even know what was really within that trench and yeah that's what i did so i didn't rush decisions i be, i also always maintained belief because mm. we can talk about what ifs and what ifs and what ifs but what would always overpower that is the belief that we can do it and if we work together as a team and we get it right then we can achieve this and then it was then we we we, we achieved into the position there was then a lot of um prisoner of war at this point, we were surrendered on, on the position and we were trying to, and there was a lot of enemy that had been killed in action. So, was, And I've seen this trauma as well for the first time and I was kind of just trying to shake that initially. Just, I think it's called de- 
compartmentalizing it or something like that. It was just kind of shifting it because it was stuff that I'd never seen before. But I also knew that we were very vulnerable because there was a lot of weaponry in this position. There was, mm. like I said, there was active um, enemy combatants and I was trying to um, calm the situation, give a bit of direction. And then we were actually in the trench with these fighters who had been killed and also prisoners now. So an overwhelming situation, but the strategies that I used was just to break break it down. Mm-hmm and just take each phase. So I kind of phased it as a five-phase operation. So it just wasn't phase one, right, go and get it all done. I broke it down into small bite-sized chunks, and it really worked for me. Fantastic. Thanks, Brian. So, you know, communication is, you know, key in terms of continuing to communicate where we are, where we're going, what we've achieved so far. That, you know, incredible steadfast belief that we're going to be able to conquer this because that gets translated to our teams the commitment in everything that we do we're role modeling we're leading and i love this bit about the cigar moment as well so also having time to pause and reflect and not just being gung-ho um throughout we've still got to to find that and compartmentalizing some of the things that maybe we can't process right now we've got to just put to one side and deal with that after the battle whatever that battle happens to be when you're thinking about um, your reputational battle, so the um, around your integrity, what do you think, how would you describe your strategies for being resilient through that? Yeah, this was the hardest to, to strategize. It really was for me. And my dad was a huge part of that strategy because he would always reassure me. Um, to talk about uh, the hard stuff to talk about, with the battle, the traumatic stuff, what happened within the battle. And I'll go into detail in my book, actually, about there's a, there's a lot of trauma within that book to speak about that um, and just be as courageous as I was in the battlefield, but now going through this inquiry and the real toughness that, you know, I was experiencing people asking me questions who I knew did you do it? Did you kill, you know, um, did you unlawfully kill? Reading it daily, you know, this is all negativity, which sometimes can then leak in to question you whether you could have done it different. And did you, did you do it wrong? Because that's, that's negativity as a whole. You know, that's why we don't like to be around that negativity because it does Mm. leave a bit of an imprint because we're all humans. And we have feelings, and I'm no different. And it and it really was a struggle. But like I said, you know, I spoke to the the, the right people. I had to show up because I was a man of honour, and that's what really kind of just kept on pushing me through the, the the darkest of times, which was the interviews, which was the images that they were showing me to bring back memories of this real hard day. It, it was it was overwhelmed by. I never did what they're saying I did. And I have got to keep going. I have got to keep attacking each day because it's only going to be me which can solve this. Um, Yes, there was others going through it. But for me, I just had to really go and, and, um, yeah, keep punching forward. and, And if I'm honest, it was definitely the toughest time to figure out figure out a strategy as well because this was like the unknown it was really crazy times panorama were showing this exclusive which made us out to be barbaric murderers and then the papers were then getting involved my phone is then receiving messages and i'm thinking i am just reliving this battle daily now and i'm getting questioned for what i thought were incredible actions on a day that will be imprinted in my memory forever. Mm. So really digging deep in terms of, of, you know, you've said it a couple of times, you know, it went to the heart of your integrity. You know, you knew it wasn't who you were. So really relying on your values and knowing yourself is really key key with that. And then your goal of just making sure that you got to the end um, of proving your your case against incredible opposition at that stage. And sometimes, you know, people throw things at us. We start to question our own memory, don't we, of what's happened. Yeah, and that's what I was doing. I was questioning myself, and yeah, and I was thinking, could I have done it differently? You know, but then I was like, oh, I survived. 
So we've done something right because we're here today. My, my son has got a dad because of our actions that day. You know, so, yeah, but it's, 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 it's difficult because, like I said, I was going into this untrained. I was scared. You know, I was worried about the outcome. You know, what, happened, what would happen if I had been found guilty? Yeah, because the reason why I didn't get found guilty is actually they they blamed it on human error. They shredded a document that actually listed all the detainees and the militia fighters that were killed in the battle um, as members of the Māori army. But they shredded it and said it was human error. But they found a copy of it underneath all of this paperwork that the MOD had told the associates to go through as, as evidence and try and find something, and they found it. So luckily, like this paperwork really saved from saved us from an outcome that I wouldn't even want to imagine. You know, God knows where where, where I would have been. Where I would have ended yeah, up? Yeah, yeah. I'm just conscious of time, Brian. I know we're gonna we're gonna close shortly. I've got two quick yeah. questions for you. What message would you give to leaders? I know there's been quite a lot threaded through this um, this podcast, but what message would you give to leaders to help their team when they're going through battles? Have you got kind of like some top tips that you would use to to uh, summarise that? Uh, yeah, I think acknowledge the battle is a big thing. I think acknowledgement to to any pressure or the battle, whether it be being you know, a pitch, building a pitch for a, for a big win, you know, or the project is really in a tough position, acknowledge that and maybe spend some time with that individual or with that team and try and find some solutions. It's investing in the team, going outside of who you are as a person to then coincide with them as individuals, I think is really important. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just for me, it's constantly wanting to try and be proactive with helping people within the business, keeping things real and authentic. And, you know, I think you then become a better leader by showing that you care, by wanting to invest in your, the, the projects for the business and, and being a, li- a listening ear, being approachable having that approachability aspect, not all the time. I mean, if there's something going wrong, then you should be someone that if there's a situation within the business, your door is always open. You know, it can't be open just for random chats. But if something is serious, people should know that they can come in and share their troubles, their problems, or even their wins sometimes. You know, because we don't really celebrate our wins. We always look at the the negatives or the troubled side of it, but actually we should definitely celebrate wins humbly, humbly but we should definitely celebrate wins. So mm. that to me, yeah, that to me is a bit of a balance, you know, and it's, and it's down to leaders as individuals to find that because we, you know, we can't do that for them, but it's only kind of stuff that I have gone through the years doing myself and it's worked. And the, yeah, the final question, do you think it gets any easier? Do you think that having these reference points in your back pocket now are very much, um, you know, imprinted in your, in your memory, does that help you going forward? Or do you think that we, you know, we need to keep on uh, getting help? Yeah, I think it does help. Going through, we've all gone through adversity now. Everyone has. My son is, is 11. He's gone through adversity with homeschooling. He's, it definitely affected him because he was isolated. He was in his room of his own. We're homeschooling. He's a people's person. You know, he loves to be around kids. His football, all of that stopped and it really affected him. He would then all of a sudden be in his room longer. He switched off from us and it was tough. And he's got out the other end of that, Mm. but he understands the way he was feeling because we spoke about it as well. I acknowledged it. I was trying to show leadership in, in this as well. I acknowledged that there was a small problem which could then escalate. And I went and had a chat to him saying, it's fine to be upset. It's fine. It's actually fine to cry. It's, it's cool to feel how you're feeling. Let's speak about it as a family because I'm also feeling it as well. Mm. You know, it's just difficult times, but there's so many people out there going through the same as us, Charlie. So we just need to try and refocus, reset, figure out a little structure what works for all of us and for you 
we just need to try and get a smile back on your face and try and get you and we'll be a spring in your step and it's 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 tough but because I've been through a lot myself you know I, I definitely have that experience of diving in and out of things that I use for instance some of my talk is fitness I go running every morning and it just clears my head it's my thinking time it's my space and not only that it's keeping me active it's keeping me fit and I have a lot more clarity sleep is a big thing for me I'm not I don't stay up late at night you know I, I go to bed <laughs> too early if I want to so about half nine you know I'm looking at my watch thinking I need to go to bed here yeah but that's me you know is I just need that that rest is important for me um listening to podcasts really helps me with with what I'm trying to achieve in my life um, you know, just getting more information on certain things and yoga. People laugh saying, oh my God, what are you up to doing that? And it's just like, but it's good practice. This is good stuff for our tool, even mm. eating better. You know, yeah. it's, it makes me feel, it makes me feel that I can go the distance and go extra because the, the, it just, it's really good for me, but that's what suits me and that's what's effective for me. But like I said, you know, I, I know different emotions that I feel and I, what, what can kind of deduct them emotions because of what I use moving forward. But there's always going to be things that will catch me out. There's always got to be, uh, you know, there's, there's flexibility in the military is a principle of war. That's what we, that's, that's what it is. So we have to be flexible in life because there's going to be other challenges that are going to be thrown up against us. There's going to be other barriers that are going to be put in the way. And there's going to be a lot more turbulence. And we just have to you know, look at it, acknowledge it. Big thing is acknowledging adversity, understanding, yeah, I'm feeling it. And then you then start to figure out the ways around it. And it's, yeah, and, and some of them is, is from what I've learned and some of them I wouldn't have learned. But I still have to be a positive thinker, whether it be bringing in my team, whether it be you know, writing a few things down on strategic planning on how, how I get around this. But there is ways, but I haven't got all the answers and I know that, but some of the answers I have because I've already gone through it. Mm. And it's good that you're having these conversations because people often say to me, but can you teach resilience? And it's a good question. I personally don't think you can, you can educate on resilience, but I think you get, you understand resilience more when you've really been through it. When you've been through tough situations, mm. that's when you really know what it feels like to have to be resilient. And, um, but having these conversations is incredible because it's understanding mm. resilience is, is really important as well. As, Amazing. Yeah. Brian, thanks so much. Really inspiring story. Uh, you've got some amazing reference points and sharing those with us has given us some for how we can endure some really tough times uh, and how we can apply some simple strategies uh, that will help. What you know, key asking for help as well when we need it. Thanks so much for sharing up your story with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Bye bye. You've been listening to The Mindset Advantage. Follow Arcadia Consulting on social media platforms to stay updated.